0: All right, folks. I'm gonna do another one. Um, this is called "The Lone Wolf in Inner Asia." All right, this is a uh, journal of the American Oriental Society, 2011. All right, um. Alright, I am both pleased and honored to be with you tonight. My first conference presentation was before this society as a graduate student, and I have long appreciated the place at the table that has been given to Inner Asia in its organization. It is, I think, fitting that an Inner Asianist is presenting tonight's presidential address, so soon after the death of... Okay, let me just, let me see. When I first began to think about this address, I was tempted to use the lone wolf as a metaphor for the scholar of inner Asia, intrepid, cunning, perhaps even dangerous, and generally quite lonely on the vast plains of the scholarly world. But in the end, I chose a more literal approach to the topic. In this address, I will consider wolves that, if not precisely real, still appear in the animal's familiar guise rather than that of an all-too-frequently solitary solitary scholar. If, in Levi Strauss's well-known dictum, animals are good to think with, it is also true that some animals are... With apologies to George or- Orwell, more good to think with <laughs> than others. You get it. <coughs> Certain animals resonate more strongly with humans than do others. Animals are both like and unlike humans with varying degrees of similarity and difference. I believe that it is the similarities heightened, highlighted by difference or otherness that make certain animals highly resonant within human cultures, often across a wide diversity of cultural and geographical terrain. Um, one can identify many such animals without much mental effort. Horses and lions and eagles tend to resonate more richly than <laughs> earthworms or oysters or dragonflies, suggesting that size and visibility matter in this equation, as do biological and behavioral similarities with humans that provide the very resonance being considered here. Familiarity is not always a crucial factor. As the example of the lion provides ample evidence, it it has become a symbol of royal power in areas far beyond its natural habitat and in cultural loci as far-flung as China and Britain. Yet in many cases, familiarity contributes to the cultural resonance that many animals have for their human observers. Of such animals, one of the most familiar for humans throughout much of North America and Eurasia and one of the most culturally fruitful is the wolf, Canis lupus. In its heyday, that is, until humans set out to eradicate it, the wolf was the most widespread mammal in the world except for humans themselves. Damn, I did not know that. Humans had ample opportunities for familiarity with wolves, in whose behavior humans could see many features that reminded them of their own societies. Interesting. This is okay. The wolf pack resembles, in many ways, a human community with well established roles reflecting age and gender. Particularly noteworthy are the raising of the young, group play, and the activity of collaborative hunting for human communities. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, look at it. Even even our sports teams nowadays, they still have animals as their uh, totem, emblem, banner, whatever you want to call it. It's the same shit, man. All right. Dolphins, man. Come on, man. <laughs> like... <laughs> uh... Where was I? Okay. Despite... Despite the wolf's close connection to human society, much of the imagery associated with it has been negative. Although it has been admired in some cultures... Uh, hold up. For human communities, wolves reflected their own identity as a cooperative group Working to obtain food for the community And to nurture and protect their young in order to perpetuate that community Well, I don't think we do that anymore, but Despite the wolf's close connection to human society Much of the imagery associated with it has been negative This is what I'm saying, man I think the this is what I'm saying. The when civilization forgets why they have civilization to begin with, we turn back into animals. <laughs> so that we remember again why we built cities or whatever, why we chose to be humans. Okay. Um Although it has been admired in some cultures for its strength and skill, many human societies have viewed the wolf with fear, revulsion, or a combination of the two. Its hunting techniques translated into cruelty, its abilities in stealth seen as symbolic of treachery, its feeding habits viewed as evidence of gluttony, the wolf was regarded as an enemy by many human communities, that it encountered particularly those who saw the wolf as a potential danger to themselves and their domesticated livestock I mean goddamn have you heard of the story of um I forget if it was world war 1 or 2 where basically both sides had to apparently stop fighting and work together to kill these fucking man-eating wolves Because these wo- these giant wolves Apparently they were like Nine, ten feet long Were taking out more of the humans The The wolves were taking out More of the soldiers Than, you know, each other So they the humans had to stop Killing each other And work together To kill these wolves So that they could keep fighting <laughs> Fucking A, man Alright Um The image of the wolf thus is often an ambivalent one, a brave, energetic, and skillful hunter, but also a cunning thief and killer whose thirst for blood seems to know no bounds. It is this very ambivalence that gives the image of the wolf its astonishing cultural versatility, and so can help account for its prevalence in many distinct and geographically widespread cultures. I mean, they're dogs, man. They're everywhere. Dogs. They're dogs, basically. Sorry. Among nomadic peoples of Inner Asia, the positive attributes of the wolf could dominate as people thought with wolves and other creatures. In particular, wolves were regarded as fitting symbols for Inner Asian warriors. Huh. This can be seen in the 8th century old Turkic inscriptions of the Orkhan Valley in Mongolia. The monuments to Kul-Tegin and his brother Bilga Gaghan, composed in 732 and 735 CE respectively, both describe the revival of the Turks' power in the late 7th century with these words. Because heaven gave them strength, the soldiers of my father, the kagan, were like wolves and his enemies were like sheep. We will return to this connection between warriors and wolves. Did you hear this shit? Symbol fitting for inner Asian warriors is a wolf. And then apparently, this is what... Is written on their, because heaven gave them strength, the soldiers of my father, the Gagan, were like wolves and his enemies were like sheep. Hmm, where have we heard that one before? This was when 732 CE. Motherfucker, man. More striking than this military symbolism, a connection with parallels in many other cultures, is the relative abundance of inner Asian tales in which a single wolf serves as an ancestor, protector, or guide for a particular human community. Hmm, what does this story sound familiar like? <laughs> Oh, my God! The lone wolf, of course, has its own peculiar imagery which can again be ambivalent in many respects. Is the lone wolf aloof and independent or an outcast from the community, a strong and noble individualist or a detested pariah, or perhaps all these things in the case of inner asia the the lone wolf often takes and takes on a numinous role that is not typically assigned to wolves in packs the single wolf transcends the normal biological limitations of wolves and is gifted with divine insight as well as the ability to nurse or even produce human beings the lone wolf thus becomes an ally and sometimes even a member of the family you know what's crazy is apparently shamans were the ones who could change between the two anyways perhaps the best example of this comes again from the early Turks who dominated inner Asia from about 552 to about 630 CE and again from about 682 to about 744 CE their empire which is which at its height stretched from the frontiers of Korea in the east passing north of China and Iran to confront the Byzantine world of the Black Sea in the West, was centered on the Mongolian plateau, and it is there that the great Turk rulers established their dwellings, received emissaries from afar, and designed elaborate stone monuments to celebrate their achievements. According to Chinese sources, the Turks told the following story of their development as a people. At an unspecified time in the past, the Turks had been attacked by an enemy who defeated and then exterminated them, save for a ten-year-old boy. The tale indicates that the enemy soldiers could not bring themselves to kill this lad, and so, in an excess of compassion, cut off his feet and in some versions his hands as well and threw him into a marsh there he was discovered by a she-wolf who fed him with meat as he grew to adulthood the boy had sexual congress with the wolf and imp- impregnated her that's uh, shamanism i think <laughs> At this time, the old Edelby heard of the boy's survival and sent troops to kill him. In this, they succeeded, but the pregnant she-wolf escaped and was transported to the region north of Koko in the Tarim Basin. There she found a mountain cave in which a world within a world, a vast and rich plain where she settled and gave birth to ten human sons. These grew and took wives from outside. When their descendants, the revitalized Turks, had grown in number, they left the cave and submitted to the dominant power in eastern Inner Asia at that time, the Ruran, whom they served as blacksmiths. According to some versions, they employed a standard with a metal wolf's head on it as a reminder of their origins. The Turks later rebelled against the Ruran and supplanted them in the middle of the 6th century. What the fuck? I have never, ever heard this story. Perhaps the most curious aspect of the Turk tale is, for us, its similarity to that of the famous story of the founding of Rome, in which the infant twins Romulus and Remus were abandoned and left to die in the wilderness, only to be saved by a she-wolf who suckled them, thereby allowing them to grow to adulthood and establish the city that would dominate the Mediterranean world for centuries. There are, of course, many differences of detail, but the similarities are striking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I wonder why. I wonder why. The tale, or a version of it, may well be pre-Roman. The image of a child suckled by a wolf, or possibly a lioness, has been found on objects in Italy predating the founding of Rome, suggesting a more ancient origin of this motive, which may then have been borrowed by the Romans for their own purposes. As Roman power grew, the image of the wolf and the twins was to be found throughout the empire. Alright, alright, okay. I have heard stories of stuff like this before so in my head i'm trying to think about this now so it can't be literal right although there are those people who are like very hairy and even their face and stuff there used to be they used to be called the wolf family or brothers or whatever so it just I don't know man, like just makes you wonder sometimes. Anyways. Um Also the lioness um is linked with the female the goddess cults, the 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 female goddess cults who also happen to be shamanesses. Like, all the Indian goddesses on tigers and lions, or even the Korean gods' uh, pictures on uh, tigers. Yeah, they were shamans. He-Man riding his tiger, apparently. That, shamans used to do that, apparently. Okay. Um... As Roman power grew, the image of the wolf and the twins was to be found throughout the empire. More curious and compelling for my purpose here is the fact that there are other similar tales to be found. The Roman, or pre-Roman, is apparently the oldest, with evidence for it dating back at least to the early 3rd century BCE and possibly earlier, a few centuries later in the Shiji of the Chinese historian Sima Qian, Qian is an account of the Wusun people inhabiting the region around Lake Balkash in modern Kazakhstan. The story told by a Chinese envoy who had returned to the Han capital in about 126 BCE after many years in, in a, Inner Asia tells of an attack on the Wusan in which the enemy killed the Wusun king but abandoned his infant son in the wilderness to die. The boy was saved from death by a she-wolf who suckled him and a raven or ravens who placed food in his mouth. What the fuck? This sounds like the prophet Elijah, right? You got fed by ravens? The child was later taken in by the enemy ruler, who recognized supernatural power at work in the boy's survival. This same child grew up to become the ruler of the Wusan. In considering the role of the raven in this story, it is worth noting that some versions of the Roman tale include, in addition to the she-wolf, a bird, usually a woodpecker, that also helped to feed the infant twins this is what I'm saying like where is the similarity coming from hmm so then one thing is okay which one is older well <laughs> obviously we know which one's older so then the question is okay so then how did this one get get the same story then hmm how did they how did Rome how did the Vatican get all these similar stories from all over the world. Hmm, how did they? <laughs> Fuck you, baby. The Wilson story contains a striking number of the motives, motives, motifs found in the Turk myth, particularly the attack by an enemy, the survival of a male child, the child's abandonment in the wilderness his being fed by a she-wolf, the temporary vassalization of the child's people to a stronger power, and the ultimate revival of the people through the agency of the grown child and his descendants. Of course, many of the Turk motifs are missing, but the similarities are too great to be attributed to chance. Exactly. What's the saying? It's uh, all good stories have the same characters <laughs> oh, man. between rome and the land of the wusan more hints of the lupine motif can be found a specter of the she-wolf nurse creeps awkwardly into tales of the infant zoroaster In this story, the child is placed in the den of a wolf and her cubs. As usual, our expectations are confounded and the child is not harmed. But rather than being nursed by the she-wolf, the child is suckled by a white sheep that enters the den. In this context, one wonders why the wolf, regarded as a creature of evil in the Zoroastrian tradition, was brought into the tale at all. Mary Boyce argued that this was a remnant of a likely importation which evolved in late Parthian or Sasanian times under the influence of the legend of Romulus and Remus. But the tale apparently has been sanitized. Still, images of twins and also single infants, as well as a pairing of a human infant. With a wolf cub being suckled by a she-wolf have been found on seals and amulets in the Near East. Particularly in the Sasanian context. Okay, one thing you have to know about stories is. The power it has to. Either unite people. Yeah, basically the power to unite. And and that right there is is kind of a superpower if you have the power to you know unite let's say a certain group of people with this thing called a story imagine then like you would want to know all the stories then so then So then you could know what to apply to which situation or scenario. Because, I mean, at least that's the way I think it's supposed to work, right? Okay. Um, Unlike the Turks, neither the Romans nor the Wusan claimed the she-wolf as an ancestress. Regarding her instead... As a divinely guided nurse to the abandoned boy or boys she found and nurtured. I and mean, it could just be totem poles, too. Um, but there are other cases in which wolves were regarded as progenitors. The Mongols, for example, traced, their, traced the lineage of Chinggis Khan to the union of a male wolf and a doe. Here it should be noted that many scholars have argued that tales of animal nurses which are nearly global as cultural expressions, particularly in identifying a hero-to-be, may well be sanitized versions of legends of animal ancestors, just as human ancestors with animal names may also conceal their earlier ties of animal ancestors. The latter process can be seen clearly in the case of the Mongols. The secret history of the Mongols, composed during the 13th century, begins with the mating of a blue-gray wolf and a fallow doe. In the later Mongol tradition, these were turned into humans who are named blue-gray wolf and, through a barely discernible act of linguistic sleight of hand, beautiful doe. <laughs> One good point to other examples. Memories of the Turk she-wolf persisted among later Turkic people as well. Writing in the 11th century, but quoting earlier authorities, the Persian author author Gardizi recounts a story in which the sparse hair and evil disposition of the Turkic peoples are explained by the childhood of their putative ancestor Jafeth. Son of Noah. As a child, Yafith was stricken with a disease that his mother could cure only by feeding him ant eggs and wolf milk. The ant eggs caused him to have sparse hair, while the milk of the she wolf brought about his wicked nature. These traits were then inher- inherited by his descendants, including Turk the ancestor of the Turkic peoples. The milk of the she-wolf suggests an echo of the Turk and other myths, although now the wolf's nurturing is provided through a human intermediary. The humanization of the wolf's nurturing act which parallels the replacement of a savior animal by an animal substitute often a shepherd or hunter in many tales. Dun, 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 dun. That's what I'm saying. This this is all that was bad. Jesus and you look up the Ainu bear sacrifice. That's all probably that's probably all that happened was Jesus got the the bear Got switched for the human Jesus. that's all that happened okay does not render the tale more logical, but it does serve to cleanse it of any suggestion of direct bestial contact or origin, exactly because humans we are humans, right? We're in the city, we're civilized we don't we're not animals we we got to separate that side from us. So people in the city were civilized. We outsourced our animal, so we scapegoated, and that's when, how we got s- sacrifices, and then that went from animal sacrifices to human sacrifice, and then boom, then you had slavery. Then you could do all kinds of shit. It was like the the in- the the Spanish in- Inquisition. It was just just re- fucking. We went full, us civilized. Beings Went full fucking mental. We went full beast mode. Yeah cause. If you keep a tiger locked in a cage. His whole life. And then. You let that fucker out. Amongst the. Humans who kept it in that box. What the fuck do you think he's gonna do. To those humans. Huh. Alright. Another connection may be found in the text known as Ogu's Oguznam, name, written in old Uyghur script, probably in the 13th or 4th, 14th century, although the oldest extant copy is more recent, probably from the 15th century. The text recounts the life of the hero o- Oguz Kagan. Alright. Um. Where was that kagan? After procl- after proclaiming himself ruler over the Turkic Oghuz people, Oguz kagan set sets out on a series of conquests, announcing that his people's war cry will be "blue gray wolf, kocbodi." Later, a huge male wolf with blue gray fur and a Blue-Grey Maine provides guidance for the Kagan during his campaigns, even speaking to offer him advice. Yeah, man, don't you guys remember all those movies with wolves and shit in them? I mean, Dances with the Wolves, come on. This is what I mean when when they say where the fuck do we get morality from if it wasn't from religion or the bible or dr-? it's like are you kidding me <laughs> are you kidding me? we we got it from the animals stupid we literally observed the animals do shit and that's how humans survive man morality what morality we act like Fucking animals. What fucking morality, stupid. We, we're the ones who made up this god bullshit and then, and then just a hand, handful of people will benefit based on that version of the story. Go fuck yourself, man. For modern historians who studied the early Turks, the notion of wolf ancestry was initially unsupported by any concrete evidence beyond the story mentioned above preserved unfortunately only in Chinese versions. This ultimately led the great lexicographer Sir Gerard Claussen to publish in 1964 an article, Turks and Wolves, in which he asserted that the wolf thing was a scarless sham intended to denigrate the Turks in Chinese eyes by describing their rulers as descended from a wild animal. Unfortunately for Sir Gerard, and unbeknownst to him at the time, a discovery had been made in Mongolia just a few years before his article was published that changed everything. In 1956, the Mongol archaeologist T.S. Dorj carried out some excavations in central Mongolia, some 10 kilometers west of the town of Bugut, in the province of Arkhangai the religious character of the site was suggested by the presence of a number of features from different eras including burial mounds ancient petroglyphs and deer stones and what appeared to have been what appeared to be a ruined altar it was evident that the site had a sacred meaning for a number of peoples over a long period of time, at least from the Bronze Age to the Middle Ages. For some years, George Sirens' discovery was little noticed by the rest of the world. The most impressive item found at the site was a large brown, large brown sandstone stele nearly two and a half meters tall which had been almost entirely buried prior to dorge suren's excavations although damaged particularly at the top which had been the only part of the stele protruding above ground its original shape was readily reestablished. forming its base is a large carved turtle from which rises a flat Rectangular slab containing inscriptions in two different languages, Sogdian and apparently Sanskrit, the latter written in Brahmi script. These inscriptions cover the sides of the stelae. At the curved top of the stelae, or what remains of the top, is the carved base relief image of a wolf, beneath which are two distinct limbs. The monument had been badly damaged, its inscriptions severely eroded, and the images at the top partially missing. It was eventually removed from its original site and placed in the open-air courtyard of the Arkangai Provincial Museum in Setzerleg, where it stands today. A large piece of the stele's top, which had broken away from the stele itself, is housed within the mu- within the museum. The stele, now known as the Bugat Monument, eventually gained attention in the wider scholarly world through an article published in 1972 by two Russian scholars, the Turkologist Sergei Kliash Tornia, Tornia Tornai, and the Sogdianist Vladimir Lipschitz. Lef- <laughs> <Lefshitz>. They provided <laughs> a description and photographs of the monument, a translation of the Sogni- Sogdian inscription, which is significantly longer and more legible than the Brahmi inscription, along with a discussion of the text, Its meaning and its historical context. The inscription allowed them to date the monument to approximately 581 CE and to identify it as an official and most likely commemorative stele erected by the ruling elites of the Turks only a few decades after the founding of the Turk Empire. While their focus was the stele's Sogdian inscription. The two scholars also commented briefly on the monument's iconography, particularly that of the damaged top. The historical context allowed them to identify the wolf as a symbol of the Turks' foundation myth, which had just a few years earlier been called into question by Clausen. Influenced by this tale of a boy saved by a she-wolf who became his mate and the progenitrix of the Turk people, they interpreted the limbs carved on the monument as part of an oddly but clearly depicted human figure under under the wolf's torso. This interpretation of the monument's images was widely accepted, although it is not without its problems. The Bugut mountain remains in the earliest known native source for the history of the first Turk people. As the earliest known cultural and political expression of the turks it often it offers scholars a, a rare window through which to observe this poorly understood civilization all right hmm As would be expected, and as I have already suggested, the Stele's inscriptions have thus far been the element most intriguing to, to scholars. These are in languages that, while not the Turks own, apparently were important for the Turks. The Sogdians are well known to have been active as merchants and missionaries throughout much of Asia during the Middle Ages. Chinese sources attest to the importance of the Sogdians in the Turk Empire, where they served as court advisors and ambassadors. The fact that Bugut Stele's primary inscription is in Sogdian reveals their influence, as does the discovery of an additional Sogdian language inscription produced during the era of the first Turk Empire and found in modern Xinjiang. At present, these are the only two known written sources produced by the First Turk Empire. The the shorter Brahmi inscription on the Bogot monument, apparently too badly damaged to allow any kind of meaningful translation, reveals a less well-known but still significant Indian cultural influence in early medieval Inner Asia. Finally, it is significant to note that it is not present a Chinese inscription or finally it is significant to note what is not present a chinese inscription while the turks employed chinese elements in some of the steles components such as the turtle base and the general shape of the monument they elected not to employ the chinese language the fact that neither of the steles two inscriptions is in a turkic language was disappointing to turkologists who were already familiar with several major stone inscriptions of the 8th century left by the elites of the Second Turk Empire and written in the Old Turkic language and runiform script. The use of Sogdian at Bagut is in the 6th century rather than the Turkic runiform script of the 8th century is less surprising when we understand that the latter had not yet been developed. Alright, and he keeps talking about the same stele for a while. As I have indicated, the forms at the top of the bullet stele are damaged. Only part of the image has survived, defi- depicting, yes, 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 um, draped over, much as the Chinese typically did, the dragon images, blah, blah, blah. Um, some of the most important steles from the Second Turk Empire, including the epitaphs of Kul, Kul Tegin and Bilga Gagan, include turtle bases. And both also are topped by adorced Chinese-style dragons draped over the, mountain, the monuments in the same position as the wolves of Bogut. Heads down, eyes open, jaws agape. Stylistically, the Bagut wolves have no obvious antecedents in inner Asian art. While they have been made to conform to Chinese dragon prototypes, they are clearly wolves and not sufficiently similar to Chinese dragons to have been arrived from them, save for their positioning on the stele. And what are... see right okay so let's pick up from the importance of the bogat monument can hardly be, be overestimated not only is it the most important and oldest native source for the first turk empire but it also set a precedent for the for the erection of large inscribed stone monuments by the turk And Uyghur elites who dominated the Mongolian plateau from the middle of the sixth century to the middle of the ninth. The was interesting is as always if you want something to last, write it in stone. Okay. Um The Bogut Monument began the process as a state-sponsored pronouncement with a permanent message for all who saw it. Those who could read the inscriptions, or at least that in Sogdian, could be edified regarding the leaders of the Turk realm and their accomplishments. Those unable to do so, could still understand the significance of the wolf as a symbol of Turk imperial power and its ruler's numinous connections. The stele thus speaks on many levels. What the monument cannot tell us is how and why this tale of a child abandoned in the wilderness to die, saved by the agency of a she-wolf, so that he could restore his people and hence ultimately give birth to a new state, came to be spread across eurasia in a vast territory stretching from the mediterranean to the mongolian plateau the how may ultimately be impossible to discover but the fact that a myth or tale could be dispersed over an enormous territory even without benefit of modern technologies cannot be disputed perhaps the best known example is the story of cinderella who has danced her way from the royal ball despite being reduced to only one shoe to find her place in cultures throughout Eurasia? This tale's earliest known iteration is in the 9th century Chinese text Yu Yang Zazu, where it is attributed to a non Han people living in the Tang Empire's far south. It, It has been and still is found throughout much of Eurasia and later spread to the Americas as well. One could point to other examples. The tenacity of such tales can be remarkable, and this is true for the Turk myth as well. In modern times, scholars studying the Nart tales of the Caucasus discovered an account of the birth of the hero Oruzmeg a figure who crosses multiple ethno-linguistic lines that is found only among the Turkic-speaking Karachi people and not among their non-Turkic neighbors, neighbors who have different stories of the hero's birth. I wonder why a turkey is called a turkey. In the Karachi tale, we encounter many familiar motifs. A she-wolf who feeds the infant here-to-be a cave in the activity of smithing, not to mention the divine intervention that is also found in these tales and combines the various elements into something greater than the sum of their motifs. The image of the wolf among the Turks seem particularly significant especially as the wolf is the symbol used most regularly as a plastic referent to the entire Turk Foundation regeneration myth, a a condensed version of the tale to remind the viewer of the more complete story and its implications. The Bugat inscription is our most important piece of evidence for this, beyond the Chinese sources, which not only contain the Turkic myth, the Turk myth, but also provide other evidence for the importance of the lupine wolf motif. Chinese sources indicate, for example, that the Turks' flagpoles had metal finials in the shape of wolves' heads, and that the rulers' guards referred to themselves as wolves. The hmm. Chinese work Tongdian completed at the beginning of the 9th century CE indicates several epithets for subordinate rulers under the Turks' Supreme Kagan, one of whom was called Bori Kayan, meaning Wolf Kagan. Bori. Hmm. The source states that this title was given to those who were particularly bloodthirsty. What then does the presence of the wolf signify in the Turk myth? Even if we cannot ascertain exactly how the story of the nurturing she-wolf spread throughout much of Eurasia, can we determine why? I have noted earlier that the image of the wolf is a powerful one in many cultures possessing an ambiguous and hence versatile combination of attributes. Wolf imagery is found over a vast geographical expanse and within a large number of contexts. In most modern sedentary societies, the negative image of the wolf has tended to predominate, but in many early societies, particularly those in which hunting played an important role, the wolf could also serve as a symbol of bravery, skill, and cooperation, and so became an important representation of the hunter-warrior. Yeah, just like in the movie 300. In order for a Spartan soldier to become a fucking man, he had to go... (laughs) Survive out in the in the wild and fucking kill a wolf <laughs> okay um, the shared activity of cooper, cooperative hunting has created a close association between people and wolves. The wolf possesses qualities of the successful hunter and by extension the successful warrior. Mercy Aliada asserted that Archaism of the religious complex of the wolf is beyond doubt. From his point of view, this religious complex lies in the religious universe of the primitive hunter, dominated by the mystical solidarity between the hunter and the game. Again, a man is a predator warrior by right of birth when he is descended from a wolf ancestor, or he becomes such through initiation. Yes, exactly. It's a psychological... You are putting on a new lens. Let's Well, uh, it's like you're wearing a new mask. Yeah, there we go. You're wearing a new mask. These are all your masks. You have all the masks, first of all, it's just you are being initiated into wearing this one now, the warrior one. And that is being symbolized by a wolf. Okay, um... The... Or he becomes such through initiation, through ritual transformation into a carnivore, the... Universal element of all these beliefs lies in the magico-religious experience of solidarity with the wolf, whatever the means used to bring it about may be. In Europe, wolves have been associated with many deities including Mars by the Romans and Apollo by the Greeks and Romans. Romulus and Remus, sons of Mars nurtured by the she-wolf, were warriors. Odin and the war father of some Germanic peoples um was accompanied by two wolves okay sorry about that where was I um, Okay, were Warriors Odin the war father of some Germanic peoples was accompanied by two wolves it is worth noting that he was also accompanied by two ravens recalling the association with wolves and ravens in the Wusan story and wolves and birds in a broader sense as in some versions of the Roman story Germanic warriors warriors were thought to be transformed into bears or wolves while preparing for battle. Hmm. Northern European mythology also placed chaos in the body of a wolf, Fenrir, a creature so strong that the gods had to bind him with guile and who was destined to break his bonds at Ragnarok. The twilight of the gods to wreck his revenge and bring about the death of odin himself check this out (laughs) some scholars have seen the wolf as a symbol of transition a connection between the material world of the living and the spirit world of the dead in the northern eurasian cultures that practice religious traditions offered referred to under the term shamanism Wolves and other animals are often links to the spirit world. In many such societies, the shaman, after undergoing initiation, is thought to be able, while in altered state of consciousness, to travel to the spirit realm by riding on a spirit animal or in the shape of a spirit animal. The function of various, various animals as mounts for shamanic journeys is well known in Inner Asia and extends beyond that region. Carlo Ginzburg, a historian of medieval Europe, has noted, between animals and souls, animals and the dead, animals and the beyond, there exists a profound connection. Yeah, stupid, cause we are animals. <laughs> It is clear that in all our wolf tales, supernatural power is at work to save the child or children who have been left to die in the wild. The question then arises, is the wolf an embodiment or emanation of that power, or simply its unthinking instrument? In some cases, the instrumentalist view may be appropriate, but in the Turk myth, the wolf herself seems to possess extraordinary powers, including the unexpected ability to mate with a human being. The grown boy's sexual congress with the wolf and her subsequent impregnation is the culminating intersection of the human and the numinous. Although not found in the tale's closest analogs, where the animals are nurturers but not Ancestors, we have noted that scholars have suggested that myths and folk tales involving animals, nurses, may be sanitized versions of earlier tales in which animals are indeed the true original ancestors of a given people. The point. Of the animal is not simply to provide a means for the child to survive. It is to show the great spiritual power that protects the child. Even when his natural parents have abandoned him. Yeah, fucking <laughs> Tarzan. The whole story is based on that shit, man. Um. Or in the Turk case, the wolf is herself the natural ancestress. Leo Sternberg's studies of shamanic societies in Northern Asia suggest that mating with a spirit animal is part of the process of divine election as a shaman, and thus crucial to the shaman's acquiring his or her special abilities. This spiritual marriage is thus part of the shaman's initiation as he or she is transformed into a being capable of communication with supernatural powers. It should note that Other motifs of Turk tale such as smithing can also be connected to shamanic traditions, but there is no time to consider them here. The greater point is that while we would not suppose that Turk rulers were practicing shamans, they could invoke beliefs and rituals associated with the religious complex of shamanism to show their connection to and support from spiritual powers. I mean even the fucking Bible when Saul goes to to the to the witch of Endor to summon up uh Samuel's dead spirit, Samuel's ghost from the underworld. What the fuck is that? That's all shamanism, stupid. That's that's literally calling up calling up an ancestor. That's what shamans do, stupid. Okay, sorry. I'm getting a little too excited here. <laughs> okay. Numinous lone wolves thus are associated with human beings in a variety of modes. Givers of life and nurturers, companions of gods, symbols of warriors, bringers of chaos and destruction, and links to the spirit world of the dead. Why did the Turks choose to appropriate with useful changes a foreign story to explain their foundation? Indeed, their regeneration when they achieved a position of political power in inner Asia. Or when they achieved... Okay, yeah. When people use animals to think with, they tend to focus on an animal's particular abilities. Animals often represent... I mean, yeah, from... Think about uh, Game of Thrones. Who has, who has the wolf thingy? Um, who does... It? Was it the... No, the Lannisters was a lion. Uh, Anyways. um, uh, Animals often represent powers that are not possessed by people. A bird's flight, a fish's ability to live underwater, a sheep's production of wool. If certain animal abilities are present in people, the animal's power is often greater. The deer is fleeter, the eagle's sight is keener. I like that word, fleeter. <laughs> the ox is stronger. A natural outgrowth of this is human envy, admiration, and fear. The intelligence of human beings, of course, has often put them in a superior, superior position. But even when they are below us in a hierarchy of nature that we perhaps too readily accept, wild animals in particular are difficult to control. As such, they represent danger and chaos. Yeah. (laughs) Wild. Have you seen a wild lion versus a cage lion? A zoo lion? Yeah. Hence, if wild nature designs to nurse and thus protect and serve human beings, this provides irrefutable proof of human centrality in the world. Spiritual power can take animal form in many cultures, particularly in those whose religious system is described as shamanistic. I mean, it doesn't even have to be shamanistic. Even, even in our own everyday language, we go, "God damn, he's a fucking beast," or "He's an animal," or "You are, fu- you are a fucking dog, man." Like we, you, we have all this link all this in our own language okay animals thus represent numinous power that can and will aid humans and plus what is to say there's there's no friend like a dog or man's best friend is a dog it's like yeah, it's, yeah because we're animals <laughs> okay they embody spiritual forces which Choose to help fated humans achieve authority within a given society, thus the she does the sorry does the she wolf's saving of the Turk boy is I believe intimately connected to the issue of political legitimacy. Legitimacy is, of course, necessary for the survival of any political power. In the study of Inner asian polities, scholars have often wondered how such far-flung empires, made up of many distinct peoples with significant linguistic and cultural differences, could survive as long as they did. The factors that held these states together had to include economic and political forces which must have been crucial. A subordinate people within the Turk Empire, for example, had to gain something by belonging to the larger polity and or lose something by not belonging. Yeah, the same. Which group are you part of? Turk rulers placed great emphasis on acquiring wealth for subordinate peoples and made it clear that they would wage war on those who did not submit. These were powerful incentives to belong. Follow the crowd. Despite those incentives, political cohesion was frequently a problem for inner Asian states. It is well known, for example, that the Mongol Empire had been had begun to disintegrate before it reached its apogee in terms of territorial size. Less well appreciated but particularly important for our purposes, is the fact that the 8th century old Turkic inscriptions are dominated less by a litany of conquest than by one of conquest and reconquest. (coughs) The Turk Empire, like that of the Mongols, faced division due to rivalries within the ruling elite, but it also faced the constant centrifugal forces of subordinate peoples striving to pull away and recover their independence, perhaps in hopes of themselves becoming the dominant power. Given the particular circumstances of Inner asian empires, it makes sense that Turk rulers would seek ways in which to bolster their legitimacy through religiously potent symbolism. These symbols would have to resonate not only with the Turks themselves, but with other peoples within their empire as well. The story of the she-wolf presented powerful symbols connected to inner Asian religious beliefs and practices that would signal across ethno-linguistic boundaries that the Turk Kagans were favored by heaven, which had exerted. Its power to save the Turks from destruction and place them in a position of divinely sanctioned political authority. The symbolism of the wolf thus works within the inner Asian context and beyond. That symbolism was reinforced by the Bugut 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 stele, in which an important symbol of foreign power, the Chinese dragon, was supplanted by the Turks' own symbol of numinous power and political authority. The bigot monument as well as the Turk foundation myth provided legitimacy for Turk rulers in the symbolic terms they employed. Whether they were borrowed or autotinous did not ultimately matter. They were made Turkic. The khan who erected the stele manipulated symbols of numinous power to assert his legitimacy. At the top of the stele, between heaven and earth, the she-wolf mediated between the human and spiritual realms, granting her numinous imprimatur to those who would claim and honor her as their mother, as the medieval Turks did willingly. So what, the Romans are the Turks? <laughs> or the Vatican stole all of the symbology? I don't know. Which one happened, man? Somebody is hiding the truth from the world, basically. So the truth always comes out. Peace.